Hello and welcome to the Sky Time Podcast with me, Simon Cousins. This is the podcast that promotes Sky and profiles the people and providers that drive the island's economy. We also want to learn best practice from around the globe to keep the Sky visitor experience at the top of its game. This week, my guest is Gordon Watson, the Chief Executive of Loch Lomond and the Trossachs National Park Authority. Gordon was appointed in 2015, but was a founding director of the National Park when it was formed in 2002. Prior to being Chief Executive, he was Director of Operations, with responsibility, among other things, for conservation and the visitor experience. Recently, he led the Your Park Project, which aims to provide a network of sustainable camping opportunities in the park's most heavily used areas. So you can understand why Gordon's experience is particularly pertinent to the Sky Visitor Experience. Gordon, welcome to Sky Time. Hi, great to, great to be here. Right, take me back to 2002 and when the park was created. What, what was the buzz like around that time? Yeah, well, there was a big buzz in Wafflewood and the Trossachs. A national park had been campaigned for for, for many years. Um, the local authorities, the local MPs, etc. And it was a real big moment when Donald Dewar came to Balmaha to, to declare that the National Parks Act would be one of the first acts to go through the Scottish Parliament and that Wafflewood and the Trossachs would be the first national park. So there was a really big buzz about that, a lot of anticipation and I think that was probably the, the big challenge in the early days is there was so much anticipation about what would change and maybe how quickly it would change and some of that may be a little unrealistic but certainly there was a lot of work to get it off the flyer that's for sure. What was the key driver for having a park? I mean why national parks? There was you know initiatives prior to the national park in Loch Lomond there was a regional park authority which was a local authority based joint committee which did a lot, creating visitor centres, small ranger service, got the Lothloman's navigation bylaws in place. And in, in the Trossachs, there was a Trossachs Trail initiative. But I think it could be seen that it wasn't quite enough. And so there was a lot of lobbying. The policy in Scotland was to not have national parks for quite a long time. But devolution came and, and that changed. And so a lot of the local authorities that had been lobbying for it came together to really pave the way and to help both get the act through and get get the new park authority designated and, and, and set up. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was fantastic times. How much of the modelling was done on the US national park system and the legacy of John Muir, etc.? Obviously, John Muir is a massive touchstone for national parks generally. During the kind of lead-in time to the National Parks Act being drawn up, SNH did quite a lot of research on the different models of national park. And there are, there's a categorization, IUCN categorization of different types of national park. So in the, in the US, obviously, it's a lot of state-owned land um, involved. And the model in the UK is quite different, where the National Park Authority owns very little. And you're, you're working with a living landscape with communities in it, which is you know, quite different from other countries where a national park is almost like a nature reserve. So, so the British model is very much about a national park trying to work with communities and businesses and landowners to achieve the, the aims. That was the approach that was realistic, given that a national park was being created with those things already there. How much of a challenge was it taking communities with you? Because you, you, you're never going to get everybody to agree with the system. Well, the consultation on the boundary was fascinating. 
you know, most communities in the core areas were keen, maybe one or two not so keen. Um, obviously, landowners may be worried about whether it was more uh, bureaucracy, etc. But as the consultation wore on, more and more communities wanted to be part of it. And the national park that, that got, eventually got designated, 720 square miles, ended up including parts of Carroll Peninsula, up, way up to Killin, just short of Loch Tay. So we've ended up with quite a big national park because so many communities wanted to be part of it. And what was the instant reaction when the park was created? I mean, did you instantly see a, a boom in visitor numbers? Well, obviously, the push for having a national park was because it was already a very busy place and, and needing to have the tools to, to, to manage that. So I, I wouldn't say we, we, we saw an overnight change as such. I think what we set out to do was to try and transform what was a very visit-dominated visitor economy into something that was a bit more diverse and a bit more economically beneficial. So a lot of the work we started to do was to look at how to improve facilities and create things that would help people be able to enjoy staying longer in the national park rather than just going for a, a day trip. That's taken a lot, you know, obviously we're 18 years on and we're still working at that. <laughs> yeah, 18 years is a long time and I guess visitor behaviours have changed in that time. What are the key changes that you've had to make in terms of the management of the park? So I think, you know, we've obviously invested a lot over the years to try and make more of enjoying the outdoors. I think when we started, obviously there was a lot of things in place. I mentioned visitor centres and, and so on. But actually the fabric of, of many of the sites more to do with outdoor recreation weren't that good. So we've invested a lot in, you know, cycle networks, footpath networks, restoring mountain paths and really creating more of an outdoor experience. And I think that's what we've seen more and more people wanting to enjoy different forms of outdoor recreation. And I guess an example in recent years is, is open water swimming has is, is really taken off in a big way. You know, obviously some of our mountain paths are really, really popular now, much more popular than they were 18 years ago. And, and obviously that comes with a price tag in terms of maintaining paths and so on. But it, it's been fantastic to see, see people being more active in the national park rather than coming out for a picnic or, or, or a day out to, to view the landscape. So I would say that's what we've seen. And I think it's, you know, in terms of people's health and welfare, is trying to diversify who's coming as well to, to, to get people out outdoors and, and, and healthy. We'll come on to some of the specifics of managing the park in a minute. But since lockdown was lifted, what have been your challenges? Oof, um well, I think the, the cliche at the moment is lockdown was a, an awful lot straight, more straightforward than, than unlocking and reopening, and uh, that's certainly the case. I think, you know, obviously we've been trying to follow the Scottish Government route map for unlocking, which is obviously where different things have been permitted at different stages. And what we've really been contending with is, you know, obviously quite a lot of people not following the guidance and coming outdoors, so when the five-mile travel guidance was there lots of people ignoring it and really what we've had to do is manage visitor pressures without all our normal sort of tools in place um so when car parks were shut we had a big issue with irresponsible car parking and it, we've only just been able to reopen our campsites and camping permits in, in the last week or so so again we had you know massive amounts of irresponsible camping and I think what these things have shown is that visitor infrastructure is absolutely key 
to, to managing all of this when you've not got it open and not got the ability to, to sort of manage how people are using the area you're really you're really stuffed and and we're really just getting back on top of it now that we've got our full seasonal operation back on both in terms of our sites and our seasonal staff and we're able to sort of get get some control back again and obviously our communities have been feeling it and obviously the heightened sensitivity because of covid and because of lots of people coming in has been an extra layer of, of sensitivity to managing amongst that as well and how important are the rangers in managing irresponsible behavior well absolutely crucial they're front and center of, of what we do and that's because the, I think people welcome being able to meet a ranger when they're out. And, and lots of our visitor surveys tell us that, that, that people value that. And it's a key tool in terms of educating people and influencing people to, to do the right thing in the national park. And, it, you know, it means a friendly word from a ranger or a friendly bit of advice about where's the best place to go and do something means that you're not having to do some of the more hard end enforcement stuff. So having that presence and also the presence of volunteers and volunteer rangers to complement that is, is really crucial as well. We, we wouldn't be able to achieve what we're doing without a full-time ranger service and a, and a seasonal um, operation with seasonal rangers as well. And do people generally respect the authority of the rangers? I think the yes, they do. But I think what we've had to find is you do need some teeth as well to deal with some issues. So... In the early days of the National Park, the big issue was Loch Lomond and the conflicts between jet skis and canoeists, etc. So those were the first bylaws we had to bring in, bring some balance to that, but also to have some teeth to, to deal with some really unsafe and irresponsible behaviour by, by some Loch users. And, and, and that's had to prove to be the case with camping as well, where, you know, years and years of trying to use the ranger service to get people to do the right thing, provide them with litter bags and, and, and give all the advice. We were still seeing lots and lots of irresponsible behaviour and just overuse of places as, as well. So, you know, again, having the ability to regulate that, but without wanting to have to regulate, but people knowing that we can means that, you know, some of the people that are maybe tougher to manage are more likely and have more compliant in terms of looking after where they are and, and not damaging the environment. There are so many similarities with the experience on Sky. You mentioned using bylaws. Is that something that is specific to the role of a national park authority or can areas put bylaws in place to manage the visitor experience? So the National Parks Act gave um, national parks bylaw powers and, and obviously over a range of, of different issues around recreation management and, and effects on the environment but obviously local authorities as access authorities have by lawmaking powers as well to deal with any recreation activity that they consider to be damaging in, in, in some way so you know really in the sky example it would be the Highland Council would be the, the, the responsible authority if bylaws were to be contemplated but while you know they've been important for us they've been very much a last resort and I, I would certainly say that Things like infrastructure and, and a ranger presence are, are key to have in place first because I think I think that's the point I was making earlier about unlocking is we had bylaws in place but we didn't have the infrastructure open and we didn't have all our full complement of rangers in place so therefore it didn't work. 
So I think those those ingredients are really important. Bylaws alone wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily solve the issue. And how do you go about funding a ranger service? There used to be one in Sky funded by Highland Council. That uh, doesn't exist anymore. How would you recommend a place like Sky goes about setting up a service? We have, a, you know, say a full-time ranger service employed all year round of about 20 or so rangers. Our seasonal operation, it's taken many years to refine that, to, to make it as flexible as possible to deal with the, the pressure points when they occur and obviously, you know, responding to good weather and bank holidays, etc. Our seasonal operation is, is partly funded by some of the income we have to generate from visitor facilities. So that's things like car park charges, boat slipping fees. We charge for use of the peers, commercial operators. So all these bits and pieces of income are really key to funding our seasonal operation every year. And obviously that's been another difficulty this year with you know things being closed down and, and loss of income to ourselves to, to run that. So it's a mix of our own grant and aid from government, that's our core funding for full-time rangers, and, and trying to sort of use a bit of commercial income to, to offset seasonal costs. You also have a volunteer service. Is, is that the equivalent of volunteerism, getting people who are coming to the area to actually do a little bit of helping out while they're here? Uh, no, I, I've heard about this model, which it hasn't isn't one we we looked at yet. We uh, we've had a volunteer group of about two hundred or so people signed up on average for many years, and that started off with people really just wanting to help out with you know footpath repairs or litter pick or other bits of conservation work, and then about five years or so ago, we we developed volunteer rangers, uh, so. That was really, really successful. We've got between sort of 70 or 80 people signed up for that every year. And that means we can have a visible presence at busy places for our volunteer rangers who are all hugely knowledgeable people, are able to help the public with information and, and interact with people about how to enjoy the national park, you know, provide some responsible enjoyment messages and so on. And it really, when, when our rangers are really busy with the kind of heavy lifting of the season having that to complement it is really key and it it actually helps with some of visitor management issues so we sometimes we position our mobile visitor center at at places at key entry points say in camping areas so that we can check that people have have got their permit or their booking or or we can direct them to the right place so things like that are are, are really invaluable to to support our our kind of main operation and loads of people want to do it, and we're always getting you know, a backlog of people wanting to sign up to, to do it, so it's been a fantastic success for us. Informal camping is a major issue on Sky, as it is within the park, and uh, I think we're pleased to note this week that uh, Forestry and Land Scotland are about to make some of their car parks available for overnight stays, very informal parking. How does that sit with the Your Park project? Yeah, well, we a lot of the work we've done for our own camping bylaws has been in partnership with Forest and Land Scotland. So campsites that we've created and many of the camping permit areas are actually on Forestry and Land Scotland land. So it's been a great collaboration. You know, we're managing those, but, um, you know, with, with agreement from Forest and Land Scotland. So, yeah, we're looking as part of the, the initiative now for their car parks, we're looking to be what we can expand and, and the, the, the car parks that are in our bylaw areas 
how much more camper van capacity we can accommodate. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're very much working in, in partnership. And, and again, we get great feedback um, from our customer feedback on that. And the thing that people really value is being able to move ahead. And we're gradually, again, in terms of how we're investing in sites, we're, we're trying to adapt them to that need. So we have camper van disposal points in place on key routes like the 82. We're, we've, we've adapted toilets so that there's 24-hour toilets for, for areas where we've got campers and camper vans as well. So we're continuing to invest to try and adapt facilities to, to meet those needs um, as well. And as, as we know, it's a huge growth market. Talk me through how the permit scheme works within the park. So basically, we have identified and designated a whole range of the, the busiest Loch Shore areas next to public roads where we were seeing all those camping pressures as areas that are covered by the bylaws. So that the way that it works is that the bylaw, the art of it, is saying that, that you're unable to camp and what, then issuing a permit exemption from from camping, so you're booking a, an area that you, you can camp in. So in places that we felt were feasible, we built basic campsites. So that's places where there's toilets, um, washing facilities, ability to park your car, and you have an actual pitch. So we've built those in places like Loch Con and Loch Acre, and they've been hugely successful because they're not like very formal campsites. They're, they're all kind of spa- they're spaced out in woodland and on loch shores and it's it's a feeling of wild camping even though it isn't quite wild camping and people it's been hugely successful and really popular but there's other places that don't have the space to do that because they're sort of narrow strips of, of loch shore so that's where the camping permit approach is is more suited but that you know it is really permission to camp rather than there being any facilities so it is a form of, of wild camping it's the maximum of three nights stay is a, a small fee three pounds per night to, to, to do that. From an f- enforcement point of view, if people trash a site and abandon campsites, and unfortunately we still see that happen, we can follow up because we have the details of the person with the permit and we have done things like issue fly tipping notices to people who've just walked away and abandoned a campsite. So the permit system is, is really key to keeping a lid on some of the behaviours that we saw before the bylaws and you know, obviously are being seen in other parts of Scotland at the moment. Do you think there's a renewed communications piece that needs to be done on the, the whole issue of camping? Because especially for visitors coming from out with Scotland, there is a lot of confusion about the difference between formal camping, informal camping, and then wild camping. So, yeah, there's two things. I, th- I think because of, obviously, people not being able to go on holiday in the way they normally would, I think we've probably got a lot of people coming out to camp for the first time, and they're maybe not aware of the Scottish Outdoor Access Code or bylaws or so on. So I think there's a an education piece there to, to try and reach people who've who've not really done that before. So yeah, I think you know it's is there's an important thing there. I think you know obviously Scotland's outdoor access rights are a great pride and and you know I think it's something we, we like to promote. But I, I think there's a big debate going on just now about the, the confusing terminology. Quite understandably, people who enjoy sort of true wild camping, you know, are, are really concerned that the, that the term is tainted by, you know, basically the, there's different terms now being used of, of party camping or dirty camping, <laughs> etc. So I do think there's a need to sort of try and come up with consistent terminology that doesn't taint 
what is you know the, the the rights that people have that they're enjoying responsibly and nobody wants to tamper with that but there is a need to deal with what we're seeing in terms of you know pe people just you know what we call the car-based camping um where people are just tipping out of a car on the off side and having a bit of a party and then leave absolute mess behind them you know i, th I think it's important to maybe look at the language you're using so that we get that communication right for people and they understand what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Coming back to something you said right at the very start about the importance of having infrastructure in place, how much does it worry you that with the economic challenges that have been created by COVID-19, that the money's just not going to be there to enable places like Sky to develop the visitor experience? Yeah, it, it is a worry. We obviously, we're in really, really uncertain times around finances at the moment. You know, we've seen things like this, this, the Scottish Rural Tourism Infrastructure Fund to, to try and tackle some of the infrastructure issues. Um, and we, we've managed to take advantage of that in the National Park as well to continue to improve our facilities. And I think there's really a need to understand that if we're wanting to capture the best of the staycation recovery until the sort of broader tourism recovery happens over the next few years, we really need to invest in those basics. You know, it is toilets, car parks, camper van facilities. If, if we want people to come in and for, you know, the local economy and rural areas to benefit from it, we, we need to see those things as an investment in an economic recovery rather than a mundane kind of expensive thing to do. And, and it isn't just the capital, it is running costs for these things as well. And that's, you know, I mentioned earlier that we, we, we've had to introduce charges for things in order to fund our seasonal operation. And I think, obviously, there's been, there was debates about tourism taxes and things before lockdown. I do think there needs to be a debate about how do we make sure we've got good infrastructure that's well run, that means that we're coping with the pressures better, that communities are not feeling the rough end of it. And, and that that's seen as a good investment in a kind of recovering tourism economy. So... You know, we're very much wanting to be part of that, that debate, not just for national park, but for, for rural Scotland generally. So do you think the creation of more national parks might be part of the solution? <laughs> um, different parts of Scotland have got different issues and opportunities. That doesn't mean a national park's necessarily the answer. The current Scottish model of national parks were really, I guess, you know, Cairngorms and Lochlomo were designated as the kind of the, the busiest bits of our best landscape that needed something to, to, to oversee it. We're obviously the planning authority as well. And, I, you know, for Lochlomo, that's a really key thing to enable the right things. It's not just about regulation. It's actually using those powers to stimulate the right investment in the park. So I don't think all those sorts of things are necessarily needed in, in different, I, I think it is horses for courses, but I would say that there is a need for, in some areas, kind of entity that's got oversight of visitor management. And I think, you know, some, you know, that could be like we had in Law Holman, it could be like a, a special joint committee overseeing a specific range of work that might involve rangers and visitor infrastructure. And I think, you know, local authorities, you know, there's probably a need to, to engage on, on a discussion on that as to how best to, to do that, because a lot of the powers that might be needed rest with local authorities. And, you know, there's a debate at national level about how some of this might be, be funded, maybe adapting the Rural Tourism Infrastructure Fund to something maybe a bit more targeted. 
to, to help with this sort of staycation recovery that we, we're going to see over the next couple of years. Finally, how do you see the rest of the season panning out in terms of visitor numbers? And would you expect the, the tourist season to expand into the autumn, the shoulder months of the year? Yeah, I think we're, we're certainly planning for that. I think it's a possibility. Obviously, the international travel is opening up again. Um, but how people feel about travelling abroad is probably going to be a mixed bag in the next couple of months. And obviously, we're hoping that the, the, the positive trend around infection rates continues, but you know there may be flare-ups. So there's no question there's a lot of uncertainty out there. So you know we're certainly expecting, we, we've seen a, a big kind of unleashing of pent-up pressure, shall we say, in recent weeks. And while that might subside a, a little, we're certainly expecting a, a very busy season and for that to maybe, you know, we, we wind down a lot of our seasonal ranger type operations towards the end of September, but we're going to be keeping an eye on things as to whether we have to extend that if we can resource it. So I do think it, it, there's there's an opportunity there to capture uh, for our tourism businesses a, a kind of staycation recovery, you know, to try and get through this season and recover something from this season for, for the local tourism economy. Um, before the winter sets in and, and hoping that we can support as many to survive into next season and, and to get back to something like like a, a normal tourism season next year. Gordon Watson, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Simon. And that's all for this edition of the Skytime Podcast. If you have a subject you'd like me to explore or a guest you'd like to hear, please email simon at simoncousinsmedia.co.uk. Now that we're out of lockdown, the podcast is going on the road to promote the island's tourism providers. To keep going, we need your support. Please get in touch if you'd like to sponsor Skytime or advertise your business on the next podcast. Until then, stay safe. Aichi